Today, we examine Elijah going from a mountaintop experience down into the valley. In this passage, we see that both literally and figuratively. Elijah is coming off one of the greatest highs in his entire life with a triumphal display of God's power over the powerless Baal. When God sends down fire from heaven to consume the dripping wet sacrifice. And now we see Elijah at his greatest low point. Not wanting to go on living. And Elijah praying that God would take his life. The key verse is 1 Kings 19.4. But he, that is Elijah himself, went a day's journey into the wilderness and came and sat down under a broom tree. And he asked that he might die, saying, It is enough now, O Lord, take away my life, for I am no better than my father's. Such a verse can be rather startling and unexpected. It seems out of character for everything we have seen in the life of Elijah thus far. So what are we to think about Elijah's response to Jezebel's threats? Many of the commentators are extremely hard on Elijah. Are we to be amazed that a man of God could sink to such great lows that he would ask to die? Is Elijah to be soundly rebuked for his fear and anguish? Are we to distance himself, ourselves from him and say, how could he? How could he respond in such a way? I would never do such a thing as that. Last week, we learned that Elijah is no different than we are. We were comforted in knowing that God heard the prayers of Elijah, and he's no different than we are. First King, uh, James 5, 17, Elijah was a man subject to like passions as we are, and he prayed earnestly that it might not rain, and it rained not on the earth by the space of three years and six months. This week, we're to learn that we are no different than Elijah. We share the same human weaknesses. We are to identify with this man in all of his sorrow and his despair. In fact, we need to see ourselves in Elijah, put ourselves in his shoes, learn from his response to all that he is going through, and most importantly, we are to learn and take comfort from God's response to Elijah. For this morning, we are going to see that God is incredibly compassionate and understanding in ministering to Elijah in the time of Elijah's despair. May that be an encouragement to us all. We begin by looking at the situation that led to Elijah's emotional, physical, and spiritual stress and ultimate despair. Jezebel does not repent when she hears of what had taken place on Mount Carmel. Look at verse 1, it says, And Ahab told Jezebel all that Elijah had done, and how he had killed all the prophets with a sword. Now Ahab's focus is upon Elijah, not God. In Ahab's report, he speaks of all that Elijah had done, not all that God 
had done. Elijah becomes the focal point. And in the focal point, he is the villain in Ahab's narration of what took place. It tells us that he told her everything, but the emphasis is on the destruction of the prophets, verse 1. And Ahab told Jezebel all that Elijah had done and how he had killed the prophets with a sword. So these prophets of Baal, those that she had cherished and provided for, were all destroyed. Jezebel is outraged, and instead of repenting, threatens Elijah's life, verse 2. Then Jezebel sent a messenger to Elijah, saying, So may the gods do to me, and more also, if I do not make your life as the life of one of them by this time tomorrow. So Elijah runs out of fear in order to save his life from Jezebel, verse 3. Then he was afraid, and he arose and ran for his life and came to Beersheba. Elijah, who had run to save his life, now prays that he might die in verse 4. I'll read verse 3 to give you the context. Then he was afraid, and he arose and ran for his life and came to Beersheba, which belongs to Judah, and left his servant there. And verse 4, but he himself went a day's journey into the wilderness and came and sat down under a broom tree, and he asked that he might die. He asked that he might die. So what are we to think about this request? Obviously, Elijah is distressed. Obviously, he's in despair. However, even here, we are to see Elijah's submission to the Lord. For Elijah does not make an attempt to take his own life. He does not try to commit suicide. Instead, Elijah prays that God would take Elijah's life. Verse 4, take away my life. As we assess Elijah's response, we must keep in mind that Elijah is not alone among God's people who found themselves in situations in which death looked better than life. There are a number of spiritual giants who wrestled with the same kinds of thoughts that Elijah wrestled. Moses, in Numbers chapter 11, verse 15, said, If you will treat me like this, kill me at once. Job and Jeremiah both wished that they had never been born. Job 10, verse 18 and 19. Why do you bring me out from my mother's womb? Would that I had died before my eye had seen me, and were as though I had not been carried from the womb of the grave. Jeremiah says, Cursed be the day on which I was born, the day when my mother bore me. May it not be blessed. So we find out that Elijah's response is not an anomaly. It's, it's, it's not an outlier. It, it's not just totally unheard of in the scriptures. And in fact, we find that there is a similar response by God's people. And as a side, I'm going to address this again in fuller detail tonight, not this exact passage, I'm going to look at a parallel passage, to try to bring out more of what uh, I am saying. But uh, in application, first, we must see that spiritually mature people can experience great distress. People encounter situations in which they feel as though they cannot go on. In fact, 
They do not want to go on. In the words of Elijah, he says, it is enough. It is enough. I'm done. I'm finished. I'm out of here. Take my life. Have you ever felt like quitting? Have you ever felt like giving up? Have you ever felt like saying, it's enough? (laughs) I don't want to go on. And maybe even have prayed and asked God to take your life. It's not uncommon for people, especially as they approach death, and they're going through hardship, difficulty, sadness, and illness, and they pray and ask that God would just take them to heaven, that God would just end their life. Such a view stands in stark contrast to the unreal notion that the Christian should always be smiling and happy. I really don't know where that comes from. Perhaps it's from a misunderstanding of what the scripture teaches concerning rejoicing the Lord always. And again, I say rejoice. Again, I'm going to talk about that tonight. But 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 6 says this, Wherein ye greatly rejoice, though now for a season, if need be, ye are in heaviness through manifold temptations. The Bible talks about a rejoicing. The Bible talks about a comfort. The Bible talks about a peace. And along with that rejoicing and peace, it says, if need be, in the present season, right now, you are in heaviness through manifold temptations or ESV, various trials. People do indeed know seasons, periods of heaviness of sorrow, and yes, even depression. That is not foreign to the spiritually mature in the scriptures. I think it would be helpful to understand and be aware of the elements that contributed to Elijah's emotional, physical, and spiritual condition. There are a lot of factors that lead up to Elijah's despair. And I want to point some of them out to you in the text. First, unfulfilled expectation plays a part in our emotional, physical, and spiritual condition. Unfulfilled expectations. If you look at verse 2, it says, Then Jezebel sent a messenger to Elijah, saying, So may the gods do to me and me, and more also, if I do not make your life as the life of one of them by tomorrow. I submit to you that that was not the response that Elijah was anticipating. He had just witnessed a great revival at Mount Carmel, and the nation said, the Lord, he is God, the Lord, he is God, and they fell on their faces. I would imagine that Elijah expected that there would be a change in Jezebel as well, that once Baal was exposed as the false god that he was. Once that these false prophets were done away with, surely she would not continue in her rebellion against God after she had heard all that had taken place. I submit to you that one of the reasons that Elijah may have outrun the chariot of Ahab is Ahab is traveling to Jezreel to take the news to Jezebel that Elijah wants to be there when she gets the news. He wants to hear about what's going to take place when Jezebel finds out 
all that God had done out Mount Carmel. Elijah must have thought that the Mount Carmel experience, things were going to be much different and better. After all, the rains had come. Now it was time for Jezebel to come to faith and express her appreciation for Elijah. Perhaps she may even honor him and thank him for his ministry. Well, that was not what was to be. That's not how it turned out. That's not how the story goes. Second, relentless opposition plays a part in our emotional, physical, and spiritual condition. This is a point closely related to the first. I want you to think about the fact that there is no emotional respite at this point for Elijah. Elijah has been through a great deal. The great success on the mountaintop is now dampened and is drowned. Jezebel is back to her old ways. As I say, he had already experienced a great ordeal. The drought had lasted for three years. And remember that in that three-year period, he begins by being by himself at a brook, being fed by ravens. And eventually that brook dries up. And day by day, he can see that water ebbing and going down and realizing it was down to a trickle. He can see day by day the stress of having no water. Then he is taken to Sidon, a foreign city, Jezebel's hometown of all places. And there he meets a widow. But even the way in which God miraculously provides for Elijah was stressful. For God had, yes, done a wonderful miracle in providing the fact that the food, there was just one day's provision, would last and last and last. But that means that Elijah didn't have to have faith just one day. He had to have faith every day. He had to have faith every day that this last meal was not going to be the last. It would be there tomorrow. And then tomorrow he had to have that same faith. That as they look and say, this is the last meal, but it won't be, for God will provide. It'll be there tomorrow. But it's day after day after day after day. And then there's the death of the widow's son. And she doesn't understand it, nor does Elijah. But then he sees God working and God move. Elijah had stress, care, misery, hardship, day after day after day. There is a cumulative factor in Elijah's stress. It isn't just what Jezebel said when she said, I will take your life. It is the proverbial straw that breaks the camel's back. It has to be understood in light of all that Elijah was going through. Thirdly, fear plays a part in our emotional, physical, and spiritual condition. If you look at verse 3, it says, then he was afraid. Then he was afraid. Elijah's response to Jezebel's threat was fear. And it is easy, and many do, say that Elijah should not have been afraid. This is a great failure on his part. How dare he be afraid? Hadn't God spared his life before? The answer is yes. Hadn't God protected Elijah from Jezebel? Yes. 
Hadn't God provided for him by the ravens feeding him? Yes. Hadn't God met Elijah's need miraculously by the single day supply of food never running out? And the answer is yes. Yes, yes, yes. I would submit to you that's all before Mount Carmel. That's all before this great manifestation of the power of God. Again, he thought it was all going to change. Elijah thought that the contest on Mount Carmel was a game changer. Elijah was looking forward to that day, a day in which Elijah would be vindicated. He feared because his hopes were dashed. And may I point out to you, he also feared because he did not have the same promise that he had when he was at the Brook of Cherith. God had said that he would protect him. God had said that he would watch over him. God had given his word that he would see him through. And God had kept his word. But Elijah has no fresh word. Elijah has no fresh promise. Elijah doesn't know what the future is at this point. God had not said, I will keep you from Jezebel's taking your life. This is a new situation. This is now one up. The ante's been raised. And whether or not, whether or not we think Elijah should have feared or not feared, the point is he did, and fear is emotionally draining. As anxiety wears a person out. Emotionally, physically, and spiritually. Fear is disabilitating. Fourthly, physical fatigue plays a part in our emotional, physical, and spiritual condition. Fear caused Elijah to run, and run he did, verse 3. Then he was afraid, and he arose and ran for his life and came to Beersheba. Beersheba is approximately 100 miles south of Jezreel, 100 miles south. That's a long way to run. When a person is running for their life, a person doesn't jog. When a person is running for their life, one runs as fast as one can and as long as one can. One runs until they can run no longer. Thus, he was physically spent. He was worn out. He couldn't go on. He ran and ran and ran till he could run no more. And there is a notable difference in the running that he performed when he was on the mountaintop and ran to Jezreel. If you look at verse 46 of chapter uh, 18, and the hand of the Lord was on Elijah, and he gathered up his garment and ran before Ahab to the entrance of Jezreel. The key phrase there being, in the hand of the Lord was on Elijah. God had wonderfully helped Elijah in running from Mount Carmel to Jezreel. In this instance, Elijah is running in his own strength. It is notably absent 
that God is not helping him at this point, that God is not enabling him, God is not strengthening him. He's doing all this on his own effort. And his energies wear out. He's had enough. Application, must, we must be on the alert when we are physically drained. It's not healthy to burn the candle at both ends. To be overly involved, to be busy. To go without sleep. It wears upon us emotionally, physically, and yes, spiritually. It can be spiritually draining. Fifthly, isolation from other believers plays a part in our emotional, physical, and spiritual condition. 1 Kings 19.3 says, Then he was afraid, and he rose and ran for his life and came to Beersheba, which belongs to Judah, and now these words, and left his servant there. Left his servant there, and then he goes into the wilderness a day's journey by himself. Elijah had spent much of this ordeal by himself. The experience at the brook of Cherish when the raven is feeding him and he's drinking from the brook is an isolated experience. He's by himself. By himself. Nobody to talk to. Nobody to have fellowship with. Nobody to encourage him. No one to interact with. He's by himself. At Sidon, it's a foreign city. It's worshipers of Baal. There were no believers there. Eventually, the widow comes to faith. There's a widow and her son, and that's it. No other prophets. No other people who are serving God by his side. On Mount Carmel, when he stood up, and defended God, there was no one who stood next to him. He said, there is no one but myself. Now he was wrong in the fact that there were no other prophets of God at that time, but the point is that at that moment he was by himself. He alone. It gets tired being the only one, doesn't it? The only one at work, the only one at school, the only one in your community, the only one in your workplace, the only one who's standing up, the only one who's naming the name of Christ. It's hard to stand alone. Generally speaking, times of hardship and trial are not the times to be alone. It's not wise to cut yourself off from others, and that's exactly what people do in their depression. They want to be alone, and being alone can be the worst thing. He leaves his servant and goes into the wilderness. And he goes into the wilderness to die. I would submit to you that's why he leaves his servant behind. He doesn't want his servant to hear the prayer that he shamefully offers to God. For he also feels guilty. It's hard. It's hard to be alone.
Next, there's a sense of being overwhelmed, which plays a part in our emotional, physical, and spiritual condition. Verse 4. But himself went a day's journey in the wilderness and came and sat down under the broom tree, and he asked that he might die, saying, Now these words, it's enough now, O Lord. Take away my life, for I am no better than my father's. Elijah's feeling put upon. Elijah feels like God is asking more of him than God has asked of anyone else. He has it worse than anyone else has ever had. Of course, it's not true. It's not true. But that's the way he feels. Ever felt that way? Ever felt like God is asking more of you than he's asked for others? Have you ever looked around the church and said, why am I the only one doing this? (laughs) Where's everybody else? I remember years ago, a dear saint who is now with the Lord said to me, because they were going through some difficulties, now I know exactly how Job felt. I was smart enough to keep my tongue, but inwardly I thought, you don't have a clue what Job experienced. What you're going through is nothing compared to what Job did. But often it's not the reality, it's the perception. It's the perception. And we can feel like we're all alone. And we're the only one. There are no others. And God is asking more of us than he's ever asked of anyone else. Those are the contributing factors to Elijah's despair. And I would just point them out to you as a warning to us all to be on guard for these kinds of factors in our own lives and how spiritually devastating they can be. We must realize how weak we are in and of ourselves. We we are human beings. We are frail. We are but dust. We aren't superhumans. We need God's help. But what I want to really focus on is not Elijah's despair, but I want to focus on God's response to Elijah for its most significant. God has a most tender and compassionate response in caring for Elijah. Rather than granting Elijah's prayer for God to take his life, God sustains Elijah's life. Verse 5. And he lay down and slept under a broom tree. Behold, an angel touched and said to him, Arise and eat. It's essential that we consider the small, even seemingly insignificant details of this account. For it is the small details that we see God's great compassion and huge tenderness wonderfully displayed. I submit to you, it's really easy just to speed read these next two verses and and really not look at all the juicy tidbits that are there. We see God's compassion in the midst of Elijah's despair and the way that God addresses some of the factors that have led to that despair in Elijah's life. 
Know with me God's activity in ministering to Elijah in this section. God is extremely thoughtful and kind to Elijah. God understands and meets his needs. First, God ministers to Elijah in the most tender and compassionate manner, verse 5. And he lay down and slept under a tender tree. And behold, behold, look at this, consider this. An angel touched him, an angel touched him. God sent an angel to minister to Elijah. This was God's activity. This was God's agent. This was the one serving at God's beckoning. He sent an angel to minister to Elijah. Elijah is no longer alone. Elijah is no longer alone. Secondly, God compassionately ministers to Elijah, providing food that is already prepared. Verse 5, And he lay down and slept under a broom tree, and behold, an angel touched him and said to him, Arise and eat. Verse 6, And he looked, and behold, behold, stop, consider, reflect, think about this. There was at his head a cake baked on hot stones and jar of water. God didn't just provide the ingredients God didn't just lay there the flour and all the things that were needed in order to make a cake. Elijah doesn't even have to bake the cake. It's already made. God provided for him food that was ready to eat. Look at this one. God compassionately ministers to Elijah by providing food that is served nice and hot. Verse 6. And he looked, and behold, there was at his head a cake baked on hot stones. On hot stones. It was not only baked, it was placed in a warmer. It was delicious. It was scrumptious. It was a great meal. Nothing like the food that the ravens gave him. This was a baked, warm cake. That's great stuff. Good food. Next, God compassionately ministers to Elijah, providing food that is close at hand so that it takes little effort for him to partake of it. Verse 6, and he looked and behold, there was at his head. There was at his head. There was at his head. Now think about this. He's laying on the ground. And the angel says, arise and eat. And behold, as he rolls over and looks, right here, there is a warm cake ready to eat. God serves Elijah breakfast in bed. That's how compassionate God is. That's how minute he is in his care. That's how thorough he is in understanding our needs. And the blessedness in which he comes to our aid. And then, God compassionately ministers to Elijah by allowing Elijah to rest. Verse 6, And he looked, and behold, there was 
at his head a cake baked on hot stones and a jar of water, and he ate and drank and lay down again. I take time to go carefully through this so that we don't miss God's tender compassion and care, and I submit to you that it's easy to do so. Easy to do so. Not just in reading this passage, but in the experiences in our own life. In the midst of our difficulties, and in the midst of our hardships, we fail to see the goodness of God in the most practical and elementary ways. We take God's goodness for granted. We see only the dark and we fail to see the light. We see only the trial, the need, and we fail to see God's provision and care. God compassionately ministers to Elijah by supernaturally strengthening him, verses 7 and 8. The angel of the Lord came again a second time and touched him and said, Arise and eat, for this journey is too great for you. And he rose and ate and drank and went in the strength of that food 40 days and 40 nights. Now that's obviously, again, God's supernatural working. Now we're back in the same way as Elijah that when he was running from Mount Carmel to Jezreel, God's hand was upon him. God is strengthening him to do what he could not do on his own. By the way, now he's going to go 200 miles when before he could only go 100 miles. What I want you to see is there's no rebuke on God's part. There is no disappointment expressed by God to Elijah. There is only tender, loving, compassionate care. Isn't it wonderful to know how God responds to us in our needs and our anguish in his plea to die? God spares his life and ministers to him. But there is a great lesson here that, that we really don't want to miss. Now, that is, now we're to see that Elijah is not merely running away from Jezebel. But Elijah is also running to the Lord. And if you get that, this passage looks a lot differently. Elijah isn't just running from Jezebel. Yes, he's running from Jezebel, but he's not running aimlessly. He's running to God. He's running to Mount Horeb. He's running in search of God. As I said, Mount Horeb is 200 miles away from Beersheba. And God sustains Elijah for the trip in verse 8. And he arose and ate and drank. And when in the strength of that day, 40 days and 40 nights to Horeb, the Mount of God. And we need to ask ourselves, does God's sustaining of Elijah mean that God authorized the journey? Did when 
in verse 8 it says, He rose and drank and went in the strength of that day, 40 days and 40 nights to Horeb, the Mount of God. Was God telling him to go to Horeb? And the answer to that is no, no. And we know that from verse 9 of chapter 9, where it says there came to a cave and lodged in it, and behold, the word of the Lord came to him, and he said to him, what are you doing here, Elijah? Verse 13, the same question, what are you doing here, Elijah? If God told him to come, the answer is simple. You told me to come here. What do you mean? No. God had not said to Elijah, go to Mount Horeb. Elijah said, I have to run to Mount Horeb. I've got to be at Mount Horeb. Why? Verse 8, for it's the Mount of God. It's the Mount of God. Also synonymous with Mount Sinai. It's the place where God had revealed himself to Moses. It was a place where God had shown himself strong to the people of Israel. It is where Elijah wants to encounter God. For he feels like God has forsaken him. He feels like he's all alone. And in his despair, he's looking for God. Where is God? The God who sent down fire from heaven. Where is he now? Where is God when I need him? Have you ever been in search for God? Wondering where God is now? Wondering how you can get closer to God, feel his presence, know his goodness, remove the fear? Where is God? But we know, we know, though Elijah is running to more, to Horeb to meet with God, God was already with Elijah every step of the way. Where is God? God's ministering to Elijah. Where is God? Sending an angel to bake a cake. Where is God? Giving him breakfast in bed. Where is God? Giving him sleep. Where is God? Providing a friend. Where is God? Giving him strength to go on. Where is God? Sustaining the life of one who wants to die. God was with Elijah, but tragically he doesn't know it. He doesn't know it. His faith is weak. God's promise is, I will never leave you nor forsake you. What shall separate it from the love of Christ? So tribulation or persecution, and you know the whole passage. Nay, in all these things, we are more than conquerors from him that loved us. We know these things. It doesn't always feel that way. There's a, a rather well-known poem entitled Footprints that conveys this idea 
very graphically. I'd like to read it to you. One night, I dreamed a dream. And I was walking along the beach with my Lord across the dark sky-flashed scenes from my life. For each scene, I noticed two sets of footprints in the sand, one belonging to me and one to the Lord. After the last scene of my life flashed before me, I looked back at the footprints in the sand. I noticed that at many times along the path of my life, especially at the very lowest and saddest times, there was only one set of footprints. This really troubled me. So I asked the Lord about it. Lord, you said once I decided to follow you, you'd walk with me all the way. But I noticed that during the saddest and most troublesome times of my life, there was only one set of footprints. I don't understand why. When I needed you the most, why would you leave me? He whispered, my precious child, I love you and will never leave you, never ever, during your trials and testings. When you saw only one set of footprints, it was then I carried you. God was carrying Elijah to Mount Horeb. And on Mount Horeb, God reveals himself to Elijah. That's next week. That's a glorious section of God ultimately meeting Elijah's need by revealing himself to Elijah. May we say with the psalmist, yea, though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil. For thou art with me, thy rod and thy staff, they comfort me. My aim this morning is that you are comforted by Elijah's experience. Comforted in knowing that spiritual giants can really struggle under life's pressures and difficulties. There truly is no shame in being human. We need God's help. We need God's intervention. We need God's strength. I hope that you are comforted by God's tender and compassionate response to Elijah in Elijah's time of need. No rebuke. Just in very practical ways, ministering to the needs of Elijah, emotionally, physically, and spiritual needs of Elijah, all being met in that section. And may it bring us up short when we want to somehow find fault with Elijah and rebuke him or think that we would never act that way. May we rethink our understanding of Elijah and what he's going through, and more importantly, may we rethink the way in which others are going through hardship and difficulty. May we not have a judgmental spirit, but may we have tender, compassionate hearts. May we understand the cry for help of those who feel like they can't go on, those whom perhaps even attempt suicide. May our hearts ache And then we look for ways 
to comfort and to help. And if in God's sovereignty we are placed in situations and conditions that try our very soul that cause us to have doubts and fears. May we know, may we be certain, by faith we can say, God will never leave me, nor forsake me. And when all that I can see is the darkness, Pray that God would show us the cake in our head. May God show us what we are blind to at the moment. And that is God is ministering to us. God is caring for us. God is helping us. God is caring us. May we trust in him. Let's pray. Almighty God, I thank you for your grace and your mercy to your people. I thank you for your grace and mercy to us. I thank you for your grace and mercy to me. Oh, Lord, thank you for helping us in our times of trial, our hardships. Lord, help us to guard our own lives that we understand some of the factors that lead to emotional and spiritual stress. Lord, uh, help us to, to guard ourselves. But we thank you, Lord, that when we are at wit's end, when we've come to an end of ourselves, we've discovered that it's not a dead end. It's the beginning of a, a new and deeper relationship with you. So, Lord, give us a cause to rejoice, even in the midst of our heaviness. For it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.